And it is Mark chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see all these great buildings? There will not be one left here, stone upon another, that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my name's sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And then when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver over brother to death, and father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. Let not the one who is in the field not turn back and take his cloak for loss. Those the, For women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and, nor, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect... Whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, here he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders and lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, 
Stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we come to you and pray that even as I speak here on earth, that you would speak from heaven. Lord, we pray that you would reprove us, that you would rebuke us, that you would exhort and even teach us in these moments here together this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, it is the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel You know the song, 1987, R.E.M. And in some sense, that's the message today. It's the end of the world. And Christians can feel fine about it. I think most of you are aware, even with my introductory comments, that the passage we're in this morning is a difficult one. The more agreement there, there might be between Christians, well, the more confident you might feel that you have a correct understanding, a correct interpretation of A passage. And then when you find that the more that not only Christians, but the scholars and the theologians disagree on a passage, or even as I've noticed the commentaries, you'll find there's so much for each chapter, but then you get to a chap, one chapter, and all of a sudden the the length doubles. More explanation is needed. More commentators disagree. Then the less sure you might be that the interpretation you have or the handle that you have on a certain passage is is the, the correct one. Um, and, and as you will see here in Mark 13, its parallel is found in Matthew 24 and 25 and Luke 21. Um, these, this section is one where so many disagree. There's so much unsurety about it. And even as I was reading up again on this, seeing in, the, in what is now, it's called the Olivet Discourse, where uh, Jesus and the disciples have left the temple structure. They're up a few hundred feet um, up on the Mount of Olives, and they're looking down across the way at the temple structure, and even reading up again on it, seeing um, you know just how much disagreement there there is in this. It's interesting, but I want to show you a picture here, real quick, of the temple structure. This may be a little bit difficult to see, but um, from a distance, this might be kind of what they are looking upon. But they would be a little bit further to the to the east here, looking this direction at the the temple. You could see um, why they are enamored by this massive structure, the huge walls, and then the inner court there where the main temple is. And you have to ask yourself, okay, why is it then that this, this uh, passage is so difficult to interpret? Well, it really has to do with the timing of the events that occur. Let me, let me explain. Uh, perhaps uh, before you've, you were preparing for a trip, you were looking to go uh, on a flight, and you, you gathered up all of your clothes and you got out the suitcase. And so you unfold the lid of the suitcase and you're thinking, you know what? Who wants to check luggage? Your luggage will end up in Zimbabwe when you're headed to Texas or somewhere. And, and, and you, you really just want to go with carry on. And so you start stuffing all the clothes in, but you also have your toiletries and your, you also have gifts for family or friends. And so you're cramming them all in the suitcase and you bring the lid over and you start zipping and it becomes very clear. This is not going to work. So you think, well, 
I have a, I have a longer suitcase. Uh, that, maybe I'll grab that one and see how that one does. And so not realizing that, well, sure, it's longer, but it's also a little bit shorter. And so you pull all the clothes out and you're, and you're shoving them in the second suitcase and you get them all crammed in and you think, aha, and you bring the lid and you realize, ah, this isn't going to work either. So what do you do? You realize at some point you just need to split up your clothes and you probably need to check one and do carry on with the other. You need to take two suitcases. I think similarly here in Mark, some want to take this entire chapter and what they might want to do is cram it all in the past. They want to put all these verses and make them all fit in the past. Um, and, and yet when we do this, it creates an issue. For example, when we read earlier that Jesus is speaking of a time when he will return to earth in verse 26. So if you take all these verses and put them in the past, you get into trouble. And then still others seeing, oh, there's some of these verses here that are very clearly in the future. And so they say, let's take all these verses and put them in the suitcase of the future. And they cram them in, they cram them in. And that won't work quite easily either because Jesus says that this generation there listening in would be alive to see these things happening. And this is a detailed argument, but whenever you have that demonstrative this and generation in the book of Mark and and in many other places, it's always in reference literally to the people, the disciples listening right there. So part of what I want to argue here actually this morning is that you really need two suitcases to deal with these verses. If you shove them all in the past, you get into trouble. If you shove them all off into the future, you get into trouble too. It is better to see that some of these verses having been fulfilled in the past, uh, while also seeing that some of these verses are actually being fulfilled this moment today. And some of these verses seem very clearly to be yet fulfilled. But no matter how you parse out this chapter, we ought to remain humble. Uh, For it is very possible to be convinced of a view only to realize later that you were wrong. To be honest, even as I was restudying this chapter this week, it seems that every position has some weakness to it. So if you feel like you have a very strong handle on it and it's they all need to fit in this category, that category, it's probably the case that you just haven't read enough of the opposing views. So no one ought to pridefully think that they've arrived at a perfect understanding of this chapter, but that does not prohibit us from truly getting what needs to be pulled out of this. What kicks off this chapter, as we saw the picture earlier, is the disciples are ooing and awing over the temple. It would have been fantastic to be there. This temple was rebuilt under Zerubbabel in 516 B.C., and then when Herod the Great came onto the scene, he doubled the size of the temple structure. Uh, There was an attempt, the idea was to build up this temple. Now think about this in their day, 16 stories high. The stones were so large, they were over a million pounds. One stone has been measured to be over 40 feet long and 11 feet high. It, it, It is amazing the fact that they got these stones into place to begin with, with the technology they had at hand. And the reason the disciples are ooing and awing when they come upon this scene to see the temple is probably due to the fact that they rarely made it down there to see the grandeur of it all. I mean, imagine. I think you could imagine this. Imagine somebody here up on the mountain who's not left 
maybe rhododendron in the last 30 or 40 years. They've just been hiding out in the woods this whole time. Some of you are like, I know that person. They're my next door neighbor. <laughs> but imagine that they're, somebody's been up here on the mountain for that long. And they've not been to Portland. They've never been downtown. And you said, come on, get my car. We're going downtown. And I want to show you some stuff. And they got out of the car. And they are just overwhelmed looking up at these tall, tall buildings. You could understand where are these disciples at? They're, they were they were country bumpkins. They were up north in Galilee to come down and see this. They're going, wow, check out these stones. What does Jesus say? Don't get married to the stones. Don't get married to this. This whole structure, it's all going to come crumbling down. The, the disciples, they pull Jesus aside and they say, "We okay, if this is the case, if this whole thing's coming down, we have two questions. First, what And when? When will all this happen? And what will be the sign that this destruction is about to happen? And I believe the way that Jesus answers their questions leaves it as though, at least maybe in their minds at the moment, as if all of this is tied up together. One suitcase, one package. It's only on the other side of these events unfolding that you come to this point where you see, ah, these things are not as tightly connected as we like to 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 assume uh, just as the old testament prophets when they they looked at a mountain of prophecy when they were looking at something they said we're only seeing one so they predicted something but they didn't see when even as they were prophesying they were not aware that oftentimes they were not prophesying about the mountain event to occur that there was a mountain range that there were several things to be fulfilled over time and i think it is in that sense here that we see what Jesus is saying in Mark 13 is to be unpacked over time. To use my earlier illustration, you need two suitcases, if not three, to make sense of all these events. To confuse us even more, Matthew's account of the same scene has the disciples asking, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? Now that's not here, but I think it's implied. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And so, recall that Jesus has been making it known over and over that he will be going away. That the Son of Man would be betrayed, would be crucified, would be resurrected and ascend into heaven. And then at some point, he's going to be coming back. And so we read in Acts chapter 1 that just as Jesus ascended into heaven, so too he was going to, in like manner, come back to earth. And if he's coming back, Jesus gives us an illustration to understand. He's ascended, he's in heaven, and he's coming back. What about this intervening time while we wait? And the picture he wants you to use and understand is the the illustration of birth or birth pains, to be precise, contractions. Okay? So in between his ascension and his return are birth pains. Now, Jesse and I recall how it went with our firstborn. Uh, She went in for a regular checkup and they said, well, let's see how things are going. And oh, do you feel these contractions? He said, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling those. I said, oh, oh, go home right now. Get your bags. Come back here. You're having this baby today, if not tonight. And so we're all just going, oh boy, here we go. I mean, we had our stuff ready. We run home. We come back to the hospital. But you know, you know how this goes. <laughs> you come back and you're waiting and more contractions. And then eventually, ah, it's probably not today. And, and at this point, I'm thinking, you know what? 
I, I understand how this goes. I think I know more than some of these nurses understand about how this whole thing works. This is not something that just the contractions are here and the baby's here that day. This, you know, this can go on for days and weeks. It was, it was, it was a, a good week later that Ember came into the world. Contractions, birth pains, they are a reminder to us. They are pre- preparing the body, they're preparing the baby, but they are a reminder to us the baby is coming. They don't guarantee that the baby is here today or this moment. So too, the period between Christ's ascension and the day in the future where he comes back, it's to be marked by particular sharp pains, struggles. First, this struggle that we feel, this birth pain, one of them is, Jesus says, be aware. There will be false messiahs. Don't be duped. There'll be many people coming and saying, I am Jesus in the flesh, or I am God. I am the Messiah. There will be this literal language that, that occurs. In fact, right now, you can go on the web. You can look it up. In the, there, are, there are places that have marked throughout the centuries all of the false messiahs. In the 20th century alone, there were over 20 notable false messiahs. Now, I'm not talking about some guy on the street corner who's babbling to himself, I'm Jesus. I'm talking about outright full-on occults that are going on, where somebody rises up and actually has a following and a backing and has all this support, only later to die and the whole thing fizzles out. Over 20 in the 20th century. And every century has been like that, if not worse than some. Why? Because this period between when Jesus ascended and when he comes back is to be marked by people coming and saying, I'm Jesus. Yes, no, no, no. You'll know when I come back. There will be no debate. But also, there's other things here that we note. Uh, Jesus also mentions about wars and rumors of wars. And we also see famines and earthquakes. Uh, just last week, I was having a conversation with someone up here on the mountain, and they said, hey, you're a pastor. And of course, when somebody says that, you're thinking, oh boy, this is either going to go really well or really bad. They said, hey, you're a pastor. Um, you know, I have a question. And so they, they started rattling off all this stuff. They said, so I've been thinking about the COVID-19 situation. I've been thinking about Ukraine and the, and the Russian war. I've been thinking about soon this whole uh, possibility of China trying to take over Taiwan. And then he says, you know, too, about the, the famines and the predicted famines, even for us here in, in the state side that are possibly coming our way, even this early as fall here. He says, I, I'm, I'm looking at all these things. And he says, look, look, I'm pretty sure that means Jesus is like coming back any second, right? He said, well, friend, don't listen to my opinion on all this. I want you to hear what Jesus says about false Christs, wars, earthquakes, and famines. In verse 7, what does he say here? Do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. So friends, between his ascension and his return, the ongoing pattern will be false messiahs, wars, rumors of wars, famines and earthquakes in various places. And you know how this happens with birth. Usually these things increase as you get closer. In other words, when we see another plague showing up in the newspaper, or we see threats of another country that's going to nuke us, or we hear rumors of another crop failure or a country overtaking and swallowing up another, We need to understand as Christians, everything is just going according to plan. 
So if you're hearing me correctly, those tragedies are not necessarily a sign that Jesus is coming back today or next week. He could, and I hope that he does. But birth pains are simply a reminder. The baby's coming. The child, the son, is coming. Wars, famines, world struggles are reminders that Christ will come at some point. What would get me, honestly, more alarmed is when everything is going a little too perfect. In in Matthew 24, Jesus puts it this way. He says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And then they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. And so there, Jesus, what he does is he highlights not terror and destruction. Normal life is happening. Normal life. Yeah. People getting married. Planning on getting married. Parents setting this whole thing up. Babies about to come. People are eating. People are drinking because there's enough food to go around. People are just living normal lives. And then he's here. And judgment has come. Meanwhile, this intervening time is marked by persecution on the church. Look at verse 9 where he says, be on guard. What is marked and what will continue to mark this age for the church is persecution. Friends, they will someday deliver us up to the court. You will be hated by family members and they will betray you. It leaves us wondering if that day should come for us. And increasingly, it's looking like it is the case. What do we do? We do exactly as Jesus tells us right here. Be on guard. So we're aware this is normal. This is the normal pattern. This is what we expect. Don't be anxious about what to say. Verse 11. God will give you exactly what to say in these moments, these key moments. And rather, we are not to be fearful. We're to be on guard and to endure, verse 13, to the end. In other words, we're sticking with Jesus and this gospel all the way to the bitter end. When the pressure comes on us as the church, we cannot capitulate and say, oh, we don't like how this feels. We're going to turn to the world's way so we can avoid this. We're going to say as followers of Christ, okay, we're in it together to the bitter end. Be faithful to the end and you will be saved. That's what it says. These words have been applicable. This is the suitcase in the middle, I would say, that we can put all these verses and say, this has been ongoing for 2,000 years. Um, It's applicable all the way from Jesus' time to ours. And if Jesus doesn't return soon, well, then these verses will continue to apply to our children and our grandchildren. Well, then we enter what I would argue is a different section at verse 14 meant for a different suitcase. This would be verses 14 to 23. Now, Jesus, recall, is answering their question. Even if this is a bit convoluted, Jesus did say that the temple was going to be torn down and they inquire about when and what the signs would be that this was about to happen. So then speaking to these disciples, now hear me out. He's speaking to these disciples about that temple that we saw pictured. And they're asking, when will this happen? And he refers back to a passage in Daniel that would have jogged their memory. The abomination from Daniel that causes desolation. And in Daniel's prophecy, it was most clearly uh, fulfilled by Antiochus IV Epiphanes. 
This happens in uh, 167 BC, where in the book of Maccabees, we read that he slaughtered an unclean pig in the inner temple. So he literally, with the armies encroaching, and came in, went into the temple, slaughtered a pig in the Holy of Holies, the place that only God dwells. And, and then at this point, uh, Antiochus begins to take over. He, they want to bring Judaism to, to an end. And so Antiochus saw to it that if any Bibles were to be found, they burned them. Antiochus um, said if anybody follows the law, the Mosaic law, that they were to be killed. Antiochus was such a, a butcher. He, he said that if any Jewish baby boys were found to be circumcised, they would hang them by the neck until dead. It was horrific. It was ugly. The takeover created a horrible destruction. And many, many faithful Jews lost their lives in that skirmish. And so when these disciples hear about this reference point, abomination of desolation, their minds are thinking, oh yeah, we know what that is. We know what what that's in reference to. And so Jesus is bringing this up to the mind, like when you see this sort of activity going on, be aware, flee, get out. Don't don't hang around here thinking you're going to make things better. No, 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 no. Go from rooftop to rooftop to rooftop. Don't go down to get your stuff out. Just go from roof because the roof's up there. You normally be up there at night cooling yourself and you could literally hop from roof to roof. Just go and flee the city. Get out. This, this reference point to them would have been so sharp. It would be as if I said to you, listen, if you hear of two planes running into two buildings in downtown Portland, don't go to downtown Portland and try to rebuild it up. Don't try to rescue the people there. Get out and come out to Mount Hood. Would you say, hey, I'm already here. I don't need to go. But the point is, the Christians in downtown Portland would know. You, you get out. You would, you would flee. And very much for them in Jerusalem, this is, this is how it would be. They have a reference point. So in 67 AD, when the Romans came, not to simply occupy the land, but they had come... In, in Jesus' era to occupy. But here it became all-out war to destroy Israel. And so while you may be tempted to stay within the, the city walls and protect and fight off the Romans, rather the call was to get out. Because the Romans, when they showed up, they built a wall around the wall of Jerusalem. And they began to besiege the city. Everyone who remained there was killed. Um... On the higher ends, there was an estimate of over 1 million people were stuck in Jerusalem while it was being besieged. And most of them were starved and some were put to death. It was said by Josephus, although he may have been exaggerating, that they actually had run out of wood because of the amount of crucifying they did of the Jews who remained that they got their hands on. Which brings home Jesus' words here because what was said is not necessarily the total number because the Holocaust, we saw over 6 million Jews, but the percentage, the percentage of Jews who hung around, it was 100% annihilation. No one was left who didn't flee. No one survived. But what about the Christians? What about the Christians? What happened with them? Because you have to understand, by 67 AD, there was thousands of believing Christians there in Jerusalem. Well, from what Josephus and Eusebius said, they actually heard this message, message from Jesus, and they got out 
When the Roman armies started to invade and started building, and they said, this is exactly what we were told. They fled. They got out and they actually went up to the mountains where Jesus says, go up to the mountains. And this is up in, Pel- uh, uh, in Pella, up in Jordan. I actually have a couple pictures here because I got curious trying to look uh, into this. They actually heard Jesus' words here. And so they went up to this um, mountain community up in Pella, which is actually now it's uh, Tabket Fahel. And so you'll see here this valley, um, if Ember's able to get that up. You'll see this valley here. And in my mind, I pictured something that was super, um, you know, just dead and, and dry. But in the springtime, you could see that this is a beautiful, luscious place for them to go to. This next picture um, is some of the ruins there uh, where per- perhaps some of these early um, communities built themselves up an in, in area in there. And then this last picture um, in one of the, this is just because I like sheep and I found this on there, but uh, here's a little boy current day. So this is clearly an area even today where they are herding sheep, where they are growing um, out there. It's a beautiful area. And so you can see why, uh, thank you, you can see why um, they were able to flee to this area and to survive this ongoing persecution that happened to them. What happens then at this point as we turn a page here in verse 24, because as it's titled in my Bible, the coming of the Son of Man, I, I think here we're turning the page. Some disagree, and, that, and that's okay, that, that we're turning the page here to a time that is much, much further from the persecution in 67 AD. Uh, what, I, what, I, what we see here, I think, is a time that's much further, even past our time, and Jesus is then referencing the second coming, his return. So that the abomination section is, I would argue, a a different suitcase, though some disagree, from the apocalyptic language that we see here that's used about the sun being darkened. This apocalyptic way of speaking is often used in Daniel and Isaiah and Joel. Um, We have it here in the Olivet Discourse, and we also see it, of course, uh, most famously in the book of Revelation. But this language that's used of this cosmic destruction, the, the sun being darkened, the, the moon uh, having its light dimmed, or the stars falling from the sky, th- this was used even back with the Old Testament prophets about local judgments that happened on places like Tyre and Sidon, in, as we read in Joel, for example. And what that meant for them when this, you hear this dark language is, Something heavy is coming upon these people. It's a judgment from God. And so even Tyre and Sidon, they faced uh, these judgments and were destroyed. I think here in Mark, um, the the encouraging piece here is even though judgment is coming, and and whether this judgment is to be taken literally about the sun or or not, uh, we can set that aside because we can see God will bring judgment, A, but B, he will not lose his people. And this is encouraging to you here this morning. No matter what you hear in the newspapers, no matter what is to come, God will not lose his people. They will not receive the type of judgment that is supposed to fall on the unbelievers, on the unbelieving nation. No, God will gather up. The imagery here is the angels gathering the elect from the entire globe and yet even from all of heaven to bring them. Those of us who who are trusting in Christ, who are disciples, who are following this Jesus that we've been seeing in the book of Mark, will be protected from the ultimate judgment of God to come. Well, then in verses 28 and following, we see a picture that is given for the disciples, that they will know these things are about to occur, specifically in reference to the destruction of the temple. And this sort of kicks off 
what I would say a lot of what chapter 13 is unfolding. How do you know these things are going to begin and, and this will all begin to take place? Well, if you go to Hood River and you go to the pear trees over there, if you go in December, it, they're barren. You come back in March, you see the leaves starting to form on them. And as soon as you see the leaves, you know the season has changed and fruit will come. And so too, they know here when they see the armies marching over, they, they know that all of this is about to kick off. All these things are about to unfold. I see it making the best sense then of that phrase that this generation will not pass away until these things have taken place. And that phrase can be rather troubling if we push it to its extreme, if we shove it all, uh, all of this back into the past. Uh, but even then, we can see so much in, in one sense of this uh, has happened. For example, the false teachers did come proclaiming to be Christ. Birth pains of war and famine did occur and are occurring. The abomination that causes desolation did occur. And in one sense, we can agree that Christ did actually come back in judgment on Jerusalem and the temple structure. But further, even judgment came for Rome later as Rome collapsed. But just as surely, we have to say Jesus has not come back in the sense that he's come finally, fully to consummate or wrap up all of history. This is why the command for us to be on guard, to keep awake is there. It seems in verse 32, Jesus is returning to the subject of his return and therefore the need to be watchful. And I want to pick up again at 32 through 34, where he says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. There's like a man going on a journey, and when he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he com- and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. So Christians, I-, I want you to hear this, that there are two pitfalls with this whole chapter that we could do. We could, number one, Christians could make the error of trying to read every newspaper headline as a sign that Jesus is coming back today. Uh, to say, you know, we don't really need to worry about any of this. We don't need to get to work. Jesus is coming back any second, so we don't need to. But we see in here the call, get to work, to work. We don't know when he'll return. So work unto the Lord. Um, But on the other side, there's the error of cynicism that can fall even on Christians. An attitude that I was wrestling with in my own self as I was preparing this. I was challenged by it, just going, you know, Lord, root this out of me. An attitude of kind of saying, well, he's probably not coming back in my lifetime. Maybe he will, but probably not. So it creates an attitude of yawning and just sort of saying, why bother even getting excited? Uh, It is what it is. But friends, I think that misses the point, the very heart of this passage. Be on guard. Keep awake. Why? Because you don't know. You and I do not know when the master will return. You don't know when Jesus will come back. Just when you let your guard down, that may be the moment that he comes. So be ready. So you ask, okay, how do I be ready? By reading Jesus' words here. He puts his servants in charge, each with his own work. There's work to be done. As disciples, as followers of Christ. First, we can say, as we've seen in the book of, of Mark, by believing in Christ, believing his words. That is work. By responding to a life of discipleship. This is a task for us. This entire book tells us how to be ready to repent, to believe the good news of Jesus, dead, buried, resurrected for you, for your sin. 
to become baptized, to serve your loving king, to live a life contrary to the world. Rather than a life filled with hate, selfishness, and sinful pleasure, live a life of joy and happiness and selflessness, love for Christ and love for others, even as we saw was central last week. Live your life in such a way that you could actually say and mean it, Jesus, I want you to come back today. I desire that you return and mean it. Recall how I opened up my sermon. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. How can we feel fine? This whole section opened up. They come out. They're walking up out from the temple. They get up on the Mount of Olives. They're looking down at the temple structure. And they're saying to Jesus, Jesus, check out these stones. We can be tempted, along with the disciples, to say, check out these stones. And Jesus says, don't look to these stones. These buildings, don't look to these buildings. Jesus Christ says, look for me. Look for my return. Jesus Christ will not deceive us. He will save us. His very name means Savior. So therefore, our hope and our pride, while we might want to place them in our structures of faith, our heroes, our pastors, our theological structures, our end times theology, our jobs, our families, our status, our preparation for the future. And Jesus says, all these things are coming down. All these things will come tumbling down. We must be a people who continue to cry, not look to these stones, but look to the stone, our Savior. Peter says in Acts chapter 4, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven uh, given among men by which we must be saved. Don't look to the temple, friends, but look to the greater temple. The one who reveals the Father to us, Jesus Christ, the one who said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. That's the temple you want to keep your eyes on. If we look to Jesus, we will find an anchor of hope that will carry us through all the trials and tribulation, all the persecution that may come on us. If we keep our eyes on Christ, we will have a stone to stand upon. If we're looking to our idols of our hearts, we will not find one stone left upon another because Jesus' work in the Christian life is to tear that down so that you only have Christ left. We're not pessimists. I think Christians are the only people who can say and really truly mean it. Yeah, it's the end of the world. Because we have Jesus, we feel fine. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would send your son. Our heart's desire is to see you face to face. To know the joy of being with the God who created us, who loves us, and died for us. And Lord, if there is an attitude in our heart that misses that, that clings to other things of the world, that even hopes in this building here, these logs, root that out of us so that we would truly hope in the true stone, the chief cornerstone. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.